All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Daniel chapter 2. And uh, I guess, how many, for those of you who were here last week, I guess I owe you an explanation as to where I was. I was at Weimar for a week of prayer and um, with Peter Gregory. And just as a brief introduction, uh, the Lord really blessed. Uh, there was great spiritual revival and repentance and um, a coming together, unity between the students and the staff. And, uh, you know, the Lord is doing mighty things, not just here in Loma Linda, but all over. So we need to keep our people and our church in mind in our prayers daily because the Lord wants to come back and He has to have a group of people that's going to be ready. And these people are going to come from all over, not just Loma Linda. Although I think a lot of them are here, <laughs> but uh, there are many people elsewhere too. So today our study is going to be on the last portion of Daniel chapter 2. Now Daniel chapter 2, um, if, I, if you can just humor me, two weeks ago, what was the main point that you took away from the study? For those of you who are here, obviously, if you weren't here, don't worry. What was the main thrust? What was the main point of the whole story up till where we left off in chapter 2? Okay, let me give you a hint. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and God took away the dream, and he gave the dream to Daniel to interpret to the king. Now, through Daniel's interpretation, what was the motive, or what was the overall... um, overall purpose or the desire that Daniel was trying to achieve? What was the message he was trying to get across? Judgment. Good answer. Really, really very safe answer. <laughs> Pretty close. Um, actually, I guess I'll just tell you all. You all, you all remember when I, when I say this, but God was trying to reveal himself. He was trying to present himself as a God that is reaching out, a God that is personal, a God that cares about the very uh, desires and the thoughts that Nebuchadnezzar had. And we're going to see that as a thread that continues even through the prophecy. That's why I wanted to begin with that. So let's get right to it. We ended off in verse 30, so let's start in verse 31. Can I have one volunteer... Just one who has a resonating, projective voice who will read for us a few verses. If nobody... All right, Jason, good. Read for us verse 31 to verse 35. Thou, King Sauce, to behold a great image. The great image whose brightness was excellent stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. His image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, and the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away. That no place was found for them, and a stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So there you have it. In one, two, three, four, five verses, that's the dream. Now, somebody, real quickly, tell me what the dream was about. Just the verses we we read, in a brief sentence or two. Tell me what what you saw. History laid out. Okay, you're taking a step too far. Just what is the dream? Just describe the dream to me. No, but you're right. You're not wrong. Yeah. Big idol. A big idol. Eric, you just saved me a lot of time. But first of all, okay, Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan king, right? So he sees this great image, and what does it, how, does, how is it described? It says, Behold a great image, this image whose brightness was excellent. So this image was really bright and the form thereof was terrible 
And the terrible word actually means wonderful in the King James. So it's this bright image. It's this spectacular image. And to pagan king, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Worship. That's exactly right. And Eric nailed the nail on the head. This is an idol. This is an image that is in the shape of what? Of a man made from all of these precious metals that's bright and magnificent and spectacular. Automatically, King Nebuchadnezzar in his mind is thinking, this is an image. This is an idol. You know, this is something that I need to worship. Already we see religion and religious um, connotation. Now, um, what were the metals? And then what's in the feet? Iron and clay. And then what happens after we see the whole image? And what, okay, she said it. The stone is, how is it described as? Cut out without hands. Now, what does it mean, cut out without hands? Now, let's just look in Hebrews very quickly. Hebrews, let's start in verse uh, chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Can somebody please read that? But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made by hands or not made with hands that is to say not of this building. Okay. Let's go to Hebrews 8 verse 2 now. So Christ Christ being come a high priest of good things to come okay he by a greater more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. So he entered the tabernacle not made with hands. Okay, verse uh, chapter 8, verse 2. Somebody read that for us. A minister of the sanctuary and, the, and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Okay, so putting two and two together. Jesus Christ entered the tabernacle or the sanctuary that was made without hands. In another verse it says he entered a tabernacle that was made by the Lord. So what does it mean without hands? Made by God, exactly. Now let's back to Daniel chapter 2. That's simple to understand. Now let's take this one step farther. This stone was cut out without hands. Now what does that tell us about the image? The image was made by hands. Simple enough? Simply put, let's just put two and two together. What we can already see from this image. This image has religious connotation. It, it uh, conjures up feelings of worship. It's a religious icon. And it's a religious system, so to say, I, perhaps that's not the best word, but a, a system of worship erected by man. Okay? Let's go to the interpretation. There's a whole lot more there, and just as an aside, what we're covering today is probably 2% of this whole prophecy. But don't get discouraged, because it'll come. Okay, let's start now in verse 36. And um, let us read until... Let's read until verse 45. So 36 to 45. Just one person. Whereas 
thou sawest with feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other peoples. But it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hand, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Okay, so there you have it. That's the interpretation of the dream. Pretty simple. Um, I like to say that Daniel, the book of Daniel, is like algebra, and the book of Revelation is like calculus. Uh, Daniel, it just gives you the answers. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. But now, let's, before we get right into the actual verses, just based on your observation as we were reading that verse, what, what happens to the amount of detail to each metal as we progress? More detail towards the end. More detail towards the end. Do we, we all catch that? Okay. And now look in verse 28. Daniel 2, verse 28. Let me read it. And there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the where? Or when, I should say. Latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon the, on thy bed are these. So Daniel simply says in verse 28, the purpose of this dream, the primary focus of this dream is for the latter days. So as we look at this image, and automatically we already see these are, these, each metal represents a kingdom. That's exactly what the verse says. As the kingdoms progress till the end, towards the feet, it gets more descriptions, more and more descriptions. So now, that, now tell me, that means God is telling us where should we focus most of our attention? The latter days. In the image, which portion of the image is that? The feet. So you see, in, in Daniel chapter 2, we see, we see the head of gold. It has actually quite a bit of description, and we'll see why in just a moment. And then, in the same breath, in the same breath, the interpretation of the silver and the brass is given it's in just one sentence. And then the, the fourth kingdom, the iron, it takes one entire verse, pretty big verse, right? And then the feet of iron and clay takes three entire verses to scribe. And then comes the stone, and we'll get to that. So, using the method that the Bible is trying to encourage us to study using, I'm just going to focus on the feet of iron and clay. Most of us, we already understand most of this, you know, most of this prophecy. But let's just, let's just go through it. First of all, um, the head of gold. It says here, Thou, O king, or king of kings, verse 37, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, and the fowls of heaven, hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Now stop right there. Tell me from the Bible, from your knowledge of the Bible, where is, the other, where is another place in the Bible where you remember God giving the animals under one man's dominion? Under Adam, right? So Adam, God said, name the animals, rule over them, have dominion over all the earth, all the beasts, fowls, all of this. It's under your care, under your jurisdiction. And God is saying the same thing to King Nebuchadnezzar. Interesting, no? What is the significance of that? Now, you see, we've, we've alluded to it briefly in our other studies before. God was trying to reach the heart of Nebuchadnezzar to convert him. That was, in, in my personal humble opinion, that is one of the primary purpose of Daniel chapter 2. The entire dilemma with forgetting the dream, having Daniel interpret it, having the wise men not be able to tell the dream, all of that 
was for the purpose of reaching the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. Why? This verse tells us that Nebuchadnezzar is in a position like Adam. He is like, so to say, the father of the world. He's the king of the world. So his one decision, the decision of this one man, has influence over the entire creation. So God is trying to tell Nebuchadnezzar, wake up, listen to me. Your decisions, the choices you make, the, the things that you do will affect all of creation. So God is trying to emphasize to his mind, come to me, I can help you. I'm the one that created you. And throughout this image, God reveals himself as the one who sets up kingdoms and who takes down kingdoms. And if you go back and you l listen to Daniel's prayer after God revealed the dream to him, that's exactly what he said. Praise the Lord for you set up kings and you take them down. So God here talking to Nebuchadnezzar, you, my friend, you have a significant responsibility upon your shoulders. And then God says, thou art this head of gold. He doesn't say, Babylon, your magnificent kingdom, is symbolized, depicted by the head of gold. No, he says, you are the head of gold. Now, what do you, what do you know about a head? I mean, what do you do in your head? You think you don't you know, digest your food in there. You don't, your blood doesn't pump from up here, but you think in your mind. So God is saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head. Your thoughts will influence everything else in the rest of this prophecy. God was trying to emphasize to Nebuchadnezzar, look, wake up. You have an important role to play in this world. And in Daniel chapter 4, we went through that two weeks ago, he did turn around. And you can read his conversion story in chapter 4. Amazing story. Amazing story. So that it, there you go. Babylon. The kingdom of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Head of gold. And then it goes down. Verse 39. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. That's all it says. Another kingdom inferior to thee. Now, tell me. Can an inferior kingdom defeat a superior kingdom? I mean, based on this text, yes, it can. But I mean, logically speaking, I mean, what's the de I mean, based on the definition of the word, superior means better or stronger or su you know, superior, superior. But God is saying after you, a kingdom weaker than you, a kingdom not as glamorous, not as, uh, not as powerful, perhaps, not as intelligent, another kingdom weaker than you, inferior to you, will overtake you. Simply put, God is saying, through this one sentence, God is saying, I will remove the throne from you and give it to a weaker nation. Because based on human logic, a weaker nation can't beat a stronger nation. If the weaker nation beats a stronger nation, then that weaker nation becomes a stronger nation. You see the logic behind that? God is simply saying, look, I'm going to take the throne away from you and give it to someone else. That's all he's trying to say. So who's this, who's this next kingdom of the silver? Let's let the Bible explain. Daniel chapter 5. Please look there with me. You know the story of the handwriting on the wall. Um, Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, was having a feast in his uh, ballroom. And then uh, they were being surrounded by the Medo-Persians at that time. And they, they, they were crying peace and safety. They're having all this fun time. And then they come out and there's this hand writing with blazing letters on the wall. And this is what it says. Mini, mini, tekel, eupharsin. Okay? And the definition of Perez or eupharsin. Verse 28, chapter 5. Thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So based on Daniel chapter 5, who is the next kingdom? Who does God give it to? Medo-Persia. That's right. So let's, let's keep going. We're just going to fly through this. So after Medo-Persia, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. Bear rule over all the earth. That's the only description. This kingdom will have worldwide influence. It will have great expanse, great territory. Now what kingdom is this? Let's let the Bible explain. Daniel chapter 8. Let's look there. Daniel chapter 8, let's begin. Where should we start? Let's begin in verse 5. Unto, okay, verse 5, 6, and 7. 5, 6, 7. 
Somebody that are, that's there, please read it quickly. As I was considering, behold, the ego came from the west on the face of the holder, touching not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran into him in the fear of his power. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was moved with choler against him, and smote the ram, break his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him. Cast into the ground and stamped on him. Okay. So the ram was defeated by the goat. We see that in this, these few verses. Now, who's the ram and who's the goat? Eight, Daniel 8, verse 20 and 21. The ram which you saw having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Greece. Mm -hmm. There you have it. What kingdom defeats the kingdom of Medo-Persia? Greece. Greece. Now, I mean, there's a lot more that we can say about that. I mean, different things like the... You know, the kingdom of Greece, they actually wore brass armor, bronze armor. Interestingly enough, they're depicted as a, you know, belly and thighs of brass. And um, this nation, uh, or Alexander the Great, is said to have conquered the then-known world. And the Daniel 2 says, Bear rule, bears rule over all the earth. So we got the first three kingdoms down, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. We're just flying through this. There's a lot more we can say. But maybe we'll touch on it more when we get to Daniel chapter 7. But now, verse 40. This is where we're going to have to slow down a bit. Daniel 2, verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. Now, what is the overwhelming characteristic that, you're, that this text is trying to tell us about this fourth kingdom? Very good. The first, the first word to describe it is what word? Strength. strength, or strong as iron. Now, when we talk about strength, there's all types of strength, right? There's positive strength, a positive connotation, negative connotation. I mean, I think of it, iron. What type of strength does iron have? Is it a constructive kind of strength, or is it a destructive kind of strength? Based on this verse, you tell me. Destructive. The word breaketh happens how many times? Three times, I think. So this is the fourth kingdom. The description that the Bible is simply telling us is it is a strong kingdom. It's strong like iron, but strong like iron not in the sense of it's made to build buildings, not you know red iron for frames of buildings. You don't use it to make pots and pans. This is iron that breaks and subdues and bruises. So this kingdom, the kingdom of iron... It says, it breaks in pieces and subdueth all things. And as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. Now, this is talking about a kingdom. Now, you tell me, where does the strength of a kingdom lie? Army. That's exactly right. Okay. The military or the army. I mean, that's how a nation destroys. I mean, this... this this is telling us that it subdues all things, breaks in pieces, and you know, just demolishes things. Now, based on your knowledge of history, I mean, we can we can go through a long method of proving that this is um, the kingdom of Rome. But based on your knowledge of history, Rome comes right after Greece, right? Now, do you, how many of you know what the word Rome means? The definition of the word Rome. You can take a wild guess. It's not that hard. Iron. That's really close. Crush. It means strength. Oh, okay. She got it. That's the definition of the word Rome. Believe it or not, it means strength. And Rome, what were they famous for? The Iron Legions of Rome. The Iron Legions of Rome. That's exactly right. And um, the Roman army, they were known to be brutal. They're known to be destructive. Um, there, are, there are paintings. I've never seen them, but I've heard about them, where you see Roman soldiers literally plowing the field where a city used to stand. I mean, they literally level the city and plow it so that it's like never existed. And this is the, this is the description of the kingdom of Rome. And at the end of this verse, it says, it shall break in pieces and bruise. This to me has significant meaning. 
you break in pieces in inanimate objects, like a bottle. <laughs> break in pieces. But you can't bruise a glass bottle. What do you bruise? Flesh and blood. I mean, some people might say you can bruise an apple or something. Sure, but that can still be classified as a living thing. But this gives me the idea that this kingdom is not only physically, or I should say, it's not destructive just to the infrastructures and to the buildings and the objects, but they have very severe techniques of injuring and hurting um, living things, namely human beings. And um, just to throw this out, um, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but um, you know what nation nailed Jesus to the cross? It was a Roman nation, right? And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says, From the woman's seed it shall crush the serpent's head, but the serpent shall bruise his heel. So there's some correlation there. You can study that more on your own. Um, but, that's right. Uh, so, the kingdom of iron is the kingdom of Rome. Now, I know I'm going through this quite quickly, but we want, I want to have more time on the important stuff, or more important stuff. Verse 41, And whereas thou saw the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. Now, in the feet, immediately we see a carryover, right? The legs of iron extends all the way to the toes, in part. The iron goes into the feet, and then something else is added to it. And what's added to it? Clay. clay. What type of clay? Potter's clay. But then you notice later on in the verse, at the end of the verse, it says, For as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with what? Miry clay. Interesting. The feet starts off with potter's clay mixed with iron, and then as it progresses, it becomes miry clay mixed with iron. Now, what's the significance of that? Um, I need two volunteers. One to read for me uh, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8. Isaiah 64, verse 8. And another person, Jeremiah 18, verse 6. Okay, Norman's got Isaiah 64, verse 8. But now, O Lord, thou art our Father, we are the clay, and thou art Father, and we all are the work of thy, thy hand. So in this verse, we are the work of God's hand, and God is called a what? A potter. So what does that make us? Potter's clay. Okay, next verse. Jeremiah 18, verse 6. Okay, so based on these verses, what is potter's clay? What does it represent? God's people. And potter's clay, it's, it's useful. I mean, as the text suggests, you can mold it, you can form it, you can make objects out of it. And then, you know, through the baking process, you know, the personal application, God's people must go through trials and temptations, and they must be, their faith must be tried as gold tried in the fire. And once, once they're baked, then they can be useful vessels, right? So the potters, the potter's clay, God's people. So somehow we see at the beginning of the feet, we see potter's clay or God's people or a pure church, I should say, mingling together with iron, which is the political power of Rome, the political nation of Rome. So now we see a union now of two things. A Christian, so to say, Christian religious power mingling itself with a pagan political power. That's potter's clay mingling with iron. We see that, okay? And it says here, the fourth, or let me see, part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with clay. Now the kingdom shall be divided. This is a very interesting paradox. 
it's a feet. The iron clay is in the form of a feet. It looks like someone's two feet. But yet it's divided. It's, it's one, but yet it's not one. It's together, but yet it's not really together. And what does God say about that? Can someone read Mark chapter 3, verse 24? The kingdom divided against itself, it cannot stand. Based upon God's philosophy, of course, this kingdom is not unified. This kingdom is divided. So what does God automatically say will happen to this kingdom? It will fall. This kingdom will fall. Why is that? Why is that? It says that they are mingled together. The potter's clay and the iron are mingled together. But then it comes down and it says, For as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. Now, what is miry clay? Very quickly, Psalms chapter, or Psalm 40, verse 2. So the miry clay in this context is something that traps God's people. It's synonymous with this thing called a horrible pit. But then it's contrasted with what? Set my feet on a rock. So we can contrast this with, with stability. The miry clay is unstable. It's, it traps God's people. Simply put, it's a negative connotation. And looking at the definition of the word miry clay... It's, it's a term to, to describe dirt, basically. Uh, the definition is clay, or something that it needs to be swept away. It's useless. It's something that you cannot use. It's worthless. It's something that traps you. It's something that's dirty. It's something that is not pure, like the potter's clay. So we see a progression. The feet starts off with good potter's clay. But then it turns into this useless dirt called miry clay. Now why does that happen? What is the process that the clay goes through in order for it to become miry clay? That is a significant point. If you look in verse 42, uh, verse 43 I should say, mm-hmm. verse 43, and whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another even as iron is not mixed with clay. So verse 43 is explaining to us how this clay became miry clay. Verse 41, it describes the feet. Potter's clay turns into miry clay. Verse 42, it describes the toes. Very interesting. The feet and the toes are differentiated. Maybe, um, perhaps we, we may have time to go into that tonight. And then verse 43, it answers the question that we're asking. Why is this clay called miry clay? What, what happened to it? It turned from potter's clay to miry clay. And it explains to us what happened. As the toes of the feet, excuse me, whereas I saw iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. What does that mean? Mingle themselves with the seed of men. Now, let's look for a moment at First John. 1 John chapter 2. Excuse me, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9. Anybody? Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. This text does not explain it crystal clear, but we can, we can deduct some very important things. First of all, God has seed, right? And God's seed is placed within His children, and it causes them to not sin. Just simply put, in this verse. And now, based upon 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, let's look there. Um, what is sin? Somebody read that for us. What's sin? 
Everyone who sings breaks the law and sects singing lawlessness. Okay. So he who breaks the law is sin. So breaking the law is sin, right? And in the King James it just says, sin is the transgression of the law. So putting two and two together, those who have God's seed in them, or the seed of God, we can say, the offspring of God, they keep the commandments of God. Does that make sense? And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, Revelation 12, verse 17. It says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which do what? Which keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So in the end of time, God is going to have his seed. Um, This is the seed of the woman, talking about the woman of Revelation 12. Simply put, it means the pure church of God. So the pure church of God has this offspring that keep the commandments of God. That's their characteristic. So let's look at the inverse of that. So that's the seed of God. What is the seed of men then? They do not keep the law of God. They do not obey the word of God. So in the Daniel chapter 2, we see here that this image in the feet, the iron and the clay mingling themselves with the seed of men. So these, if you think back into history, after the Roman Empire, it was divided, right? It was divided into all these different kingdoms, but they tried to bring the different religions together. And the prince here would marry the princess over here to try to merge these religions. Yes, they were trying to bring unity to the states, sure. But primarily, the division came because of the differences in their religious beliefs. Throughout the Dark Ages, especially after the Protestant Reformation, these people, they were marrying themselves and mingling their seeds together, but they did not obey the law of God. And as much as they want to unite, as much unity as they thought they had, what does God say about it? Daniel 2, it says, They shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. Men that do not obey the law of God. They are the wicked, son of the, son, children of the wicked one. And what does God say? It says, but they shall not cleave one to another. They shall not cleave one to another. Now, just based on what you know, when, when was the first time the word cleave was used? You're talking about what? Marriage. Marriage between Adam and Eve. And God later on says, you know, as a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and two flesh shall become one. The whole purpose of cleaving, leaving and cleaving, is for two people to become one person. So these people mingling themselves with the seed of men, meaning the political power of Rome, or Romish, Rome-like political power, mingling itself with a religious power that does not keep the law of God. God looks at that and says, you're trying to marry yourself, but that is not a legal marriage. You cannot cleave together. What's the word for an illegal marriage? Or marriage that people try to come together, but it's not sanctioned. It's unholy. What is it called? Adultery. Adultery, there's a different word. Fornication. So right here we see, in the feet of iron and clay, there is fornication going on. And what does God call this fornication? A union of church and state power. That's the whole point of the feet of this image. The final kingdom is called a kingdom. It's called church and state kingdom. There are a lot that goes into this. And just as a preview, the Bible does this thing called repeat and enlarge. When you go into the book of Revelation, it skips almost everything. The whole image is just cut out, and it just talks about the feet of iron and clay. So when you study the book of Revelation, all you're studying is these three verses in Daniel chapter 2. The feet of iron and clay. But we're not going to that right now. So that's the whole point. The kingdom comes down, and when we come to the feet, we see it is a union of man's adulterated Christian religion mixing together with this political power that has the characteristics of Rome. 
And verse 42, taking a step back, And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Now, partly strong, partly broken. Which part is strong and which part is broken? Iron is strong. Clay is broken. Now, when you, when you think about this very logically, when you think about this this way, let's say you have, you have the shape of, that's made from iron. In order for you to put the iron and the clay together, which of the two substances will have to compromise? The clay. So whenever there is a church and state union, the church is always the one to compromise. Always. Looking through history, specifically, I'm thinking of the time of Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab was this Christian political power, Christian, so to say. And his religion came and he was merged with the the powers of Jezebel. The political power of Israel was still intact, but it was the religious power or the religion of of the Jews that was compromised. And what resulted? What resulted for God's people? persecution. And again, you, you look down to the time of Jesus. The Jewish leaders, they cried, we have no king but Caesar. Can you imagine? These are the Jews that said, we are the chosen people of God. They said, we have no king but Caesar. The religion compromised when they tried to unite with the political power. And what happened? Jesus was nailed to the cross. Whenever religion, a Christian, I should say, whenever a Christian so-called power tries to unite with a, or a political power, the Christian power always gets compromised. And what always ends up as a result is persecution of God's people. And so, right now, we're looking around the world, and this is actually a really deep study. Do we see a one worldwide power that's a union of church and state? Not really. Not really. That's why we don't really see persecution right now of God's people, do we? At least not in this country. There's persecutions all over um, in remote locations. But for God's people as a whole, like it was during the Dark Ages, when the, when the nations were ruled by a union of political and, and religious power, also known as the Holy Roman Empire, or the Papal Power, persecution was rampant all over. But all I'm going to say right now is that God has placed an important pause within the construction of this image. This is, like I said, it's a whole huge study. But just to say God sees that if this power was continue, continues to run all the way from the time at the end of the Roman Empire, of the legs of iron, all the way until the end of time like it will, if he just let it run amok like that, God's people will have no chance. No chance to grow and develop. So God said, hang on, wait just a moment. I need to raise up my people. I need to train up my people so that they can stand when persecution will start again. And so this is the key. This is the key. When God's people are ready, church and state union will come back. We don't see it right now. You can, you can study the book of Revelation. We'll see it in Daniel chapter 7. Union of church and state one day will come back. And as a natural result, persecution of God's people will ensue. And so what's the determining factor? Are we ready? Are you ready? We should not be worried about, oh, you know, I, I, I'm scared of persecution. No, no, no. That's not the whole, that's, you, you're missing the whole point. The whole point is, I want to be like Jesus. And when you, be like, when you are like Jesus, persecution naturally comes, just like persecution followed Jesus wherever he went. So we need to keep the right perspective. So the feet of iron and clay. So I believe that right now we are in the toes of time, but God has hit the pause button, waiting for us to get ready. And when the, when the toes are finally extending, the final person, persecution will come. And it is at that time in the darkest time of earth's history, that verse 44 takes place. Verse 44, and says, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, 
and it shall stand forever. Finally, after God's people get ready, when the toes are completed, the stone will come, cut out without hands. The kingdom of God will come and destroy this image. Now this image, there's, a, there's actually a whole lot more. And let me try to wrap things up real quick. So we see, at, by the time we come to the end of the feet and the toes, the next event comes the rock. Now, we already discussed that this image was in the shape or in the form of a man or a human being. Now, there's a few verses I'd like you all to read. Uh, first one is Proverbs 23, verse 7. Whoever gets it can read it for us. For as he thinks in his heart, so does he eat and drink. He says to you, but his heart is not with you. Okay. So the first sentence of that of that verse, what does it say? One more time. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. That's right. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So basically, you are determined, your identity as a human being is not determined by your right arm. It's not determined by your left pinky. It's not determined by your stomach. It's determined by your head, your mind. What you think identifies you. And elsewhere in the Bible, it says that Jesus Christ is a head of the body, which is the church, which means the entire body looks like Jesus. That's a whole other study. You know, just being a part of God's the body of Christ means that we should look like Jesus in our characters. You can study that more on your own. But actually, just looking at this image, the head is what? Based on what we studied. What kingdom? Babylon. Babylon. And, the, and, and God said, Nebuchadnezzar, thou art this head of gold. Your decisions affect the rest of this image. Therefore, this entire image, if we can give a name to this image, what would this image be called? Babylon. And what is this image? We see the different metals they represent, different nations, different kingdoms, political powers. But the entire image is a what? Is an idol. It's an idol. So you see that there, just in the image itself, Babylon is called a union of false religion with political power. So when you go to the book of Revelation, it says there is a woman on her name is on her forehead says mystery Babylon the Great automatically Babylon the Great based on Daniel chapter 2 is false religion mingled or un united together with political power throughout the ages that's Babylon and so Babylon is this man so this man let's call him Babylon how is he destroyed Rock cut out without hands. There's a specific term. In the days of ancient Israel, when a person is killed, this man was stoned. Isn't that right? It's the image of a man, and he's stoned. So now, based on the Bible, why are human beings stoned in the Hebrew culture? For what reasons were they stoned? Let's look at a few verses. First of all, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 through 5. Let's go through these one by one. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 through 5. Uh, anyone can read it, whoever gets it first. There be found among you anyone within the gates which the Lord your God gives to man or woman who brought wickedness to the sight of the Lord thy God in transgressing his covenant, have gone and served other gods and worshipped them neither the sun nor the moon or any of the hosts of heaven which I have not commanded. And it be told thee, thou hast heard of it, and inquire diligently, and if it's true, think certain that such an abomination is wrought in Israel, then thou shalt bring forth that man or that woman which hath committed that wicked thing unto thy gate. Even that man or that woman shall, and shalt stone them with stones till they die. So what is the sin that warrants stoning based on these verses? Worshipping other gods. Worshipping other gods, or we can also put in idolatry. And specifically, what gods were mentioned? The sun, 
the moon and anything in the heavens. Specifically, the sun. Very interesting. Throughout the ages, the sun has been the primary, primary object of worship. In fact, the sun was the highest god of Babylon. And Baal, you remember, Baal was the god of the sun. That's why, that's why um, Elijah, he said, you know, you like your sun so much, it's not going to rain for three and a half years. You can have the sun all you want. And at the end of three and a half years, he says, you like the sun so much, well, have him call fire down from heaven. But he couldn't do it. It was the, the sun has always been the primary object of worship in New Age, uh, paganism, the occult, the sun. And also, believe it or not, most Christians today, they worship on the venerable day of the sun. And that came out from the time of the iron and clay. After the Roman Empire, the Catholic Church, the papal power, they changed the day. Constantine made the day Sunday in honor of the pagans, or to help the pagans assimilate into Christian culture. So specifically, idolatry, but specifically sun worship, is warrant stoning. So next, let's go to Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15, Numbers chapter 15, verse 32, 32 through 36. Anyone? And while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. And they that found him gathering sticks brought him unto Moses and Aaron and unto all the congregation. And they put him inward, because it was not declared what should be done to him. And the Lord said unto Moses, The man shall be surely put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. Okay, that's fine. Now, I know a lot of questions are popping up in your mind. You know, this guy was stoned for picking up sticks? Well, let me, let me explain. In the t- two previous verses, the two very previous verses to these verses, uh, in verse 30 it says, But the soul that doeth ought presumptuously, whether he be born in the land or a stranger, the same reproach of the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from among his people. It is in the context of describing presumptuous sins. So basically, the story that comes immediately afterwards, in the context, God is trying to illustrate and say, This man sinned presumptuously. That's why we put him away. So, Put aside your fears that God is about to stone us for picking up a stick on Sabbath. That's not the point. The point is that this man knew that it was wrong. He knew. I mean, the the camp specifically said, you know, we don't do this on Sabbath. But he went ahead and did it anyway. It was presumptuous. And that's why he was stoned. Presumptuously. So, I mean, if you know that you shouldn't kill somebody and you go and kill somebody, I mean, this is about the same same thing. Okay, with with that aside... Why was this man stoned? <laughs> breaking the Sabbath. So first of all, idolatry. Second of all, Sabbath breaking. Presumptuous Sabbath breaking warranted stoning of a man. Okay, let's keep going. John chapter 10, verse 31 to 33. This one I'm sure you've heard before. John 10, 31 to 33. I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up stones began to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. So Jesus was, they attempted to stone Jesus. For what reason? Blasphemy. Blasphemy, but blasphemy based on this verse. What does it mean? As a man making yourself God. So a man can be stoned for blasphemy. More specifically, a man trying to make himself God can be stoned. And needless to say, throughout the Dark Ages, there was a man who called himself the vicar of the Son of God. One who stands in the place of the Son of God. 
And at the end of time, there will also be powers that claim to have that power, to be God. And we see that in Revelation chapter 13. Perhaps we'll study that one day. And, and finally, John 8, verse 4 and 5. There's actually a couple, another verse that's better than this, but I don't think we have enough time to go through that one. It's pretty long. But John 8, 4 and 5. This is talking about the woman caught in adultery. So you don't even really need to read it. Based on that um, chapter, well, who's there? Let's just read it. John 8, 4 and 5. Okay, and the place that's found in the law, maybe if you want to write it down, is in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 20 to 24. And it goes through the list of all, all the sexual, um, I guess, promiscuity and adultery and fornication that warrants stoning. And it pretty covers everything. So in, in short, adultery or fornication warrants stoning. Now, interestingly enough, we have seen four characteristics, idolatry, Sabbath-breaking, blasphemy, and now fornication. And all of these characteristics take place in which part of the image? In the feet. Do you see that? The church and the state coming together, God calls that fornication. And when they came together, the church compromised. And how did it compromise? In order to accommodate the pagan religions, they worshipped the sun, and they broke the Sabbath. And finally... As a result of that, a man arose to rule the church and the state that called himself the vicar of the Son of God. So in the end of time, in Revelation chapter 13, it says this power will rise again. It suffered a deadly wound, but it will heal. It's healing. And when it is healed, the toes of the feet will resume construction. And when that time comes, persecution will rise for God's people. And at the end of that persecution, the stone will come. And it will destroy this image. There's a lot more we can say. But simply put, the stone is what we're waiting for. The stone, the image of God, or, or the uh, kingdom of God coming. Um, when we come to Daniel chapter 7, we will cover the stone a lot more. But just for the time being, let us just suffice it to say that the stone is the kingdom of God that is coming to establish His never-ending kingdom on this earth. So there we have it. This is the basic skeleton outline. Daniel chapter 2, the image. The head of gold, Babylon. Chest and arms of silver, Medo-Persia. Belly and thighs of brass, uh, Greece. Legs of iron, Rome. Feet of iron and clay, a combined power of Christian, apostate Christian religion with political power. At the very end, in the toes of time, the rock will come and destroy the image. So there you have it, Daniel chapter 2. This is the foundation. Let me just say this in closing. This is the very foundational prophecy that the rest of the book of Daniel and the entire book of Revelation is built upon. This foundation is, is the launch pad for studies deeper into the events in our current history and also in times to come. So... Daniel 2, keep that in mind as you study the prophecies in the future. So, before I close, any questions or comments? I do. Uh, yes. Why does it say that the clay and the iron won't cleave? They won't cleave? Um, this is the reason. Church and state can never unite. It's just, this is just a fact that God is laying out. Church and state will never unite. The only church and state power that can ever work harmoniously together is in God's government. God's political government with God's religious worship system combined together. Whenever man tries to bring it, um, God describes it as iron that's that can't be mixed with clay. And a kingdom that, does, that is divided cannot stand. And we see it throughout history. Church and state, they come together, it collapses. It never works. It always ends up in bloodshed and massacres and destruction. Any other questions? I'm surprised there's not a single question. 
there's a, there is one particular question that I was sure somebody was going to ask, but I'm not going to tell you. <clears throat> if you're interested, say afterwards, and let me explain the question that you should have asked. Because <laughs> you'll, probably, you'll probably get asked this question if you explain this prophecy to someone this way. Okay, no other questions. Well, the clay it starts off as potter's clay. Mm -hmm. So are we saying that that a pure church tried to combine with a political power initially? Initially, the church was pure. Mm -hmm. Initially, the church was pure. And it was as it became united within the person. You remember Constantine, just a little bit of history. Constantine was a Christian, or he became a Christian, converged to Christianity, but he was an emperor. And he wanted to combine pagan religion, where he came out of, and now his Christian religion, and try to you know, have a hybrid of the two, mix it together. So what he did was he had to compromise Christianity in order for the pagans to come into the church. And that, in my mind, was the turning point. It was pure before, but when it became popular, it came into union with the state, it was compromised, and specifically in the area of the Sabbath. Other areas too, but mainly the Sabbath. Okay. Like you've got, um, you know, like, you know, fire from tapes of a different time. Mm -hmm. Then how come you've got from Jesus' time till now, which is like 2,000 years, in like little foot? In the little foot? Yeah, and then like you've got what, from th this is like 150 years, you know, this is like 2,000 years later. Yeah. <laughs> well, you see, Jesus was in the legs of iron. The feet of iron and clay did not happen until 538. Well, okay, then you've got 1,500 years. Yeah. Still well, this is the, this is the, you're, you're trading on pretty serious ground. But, you know, the, the image, it's not trying to tell you the proportion of the time. Like, just because the legs of iron are longer does not mean that it's the longest time period. No, that's not what it means. Um, the image was simply to make the point of how it's divided, and that it's a religious entity. But also, the reason why the feet is so long, has, has extended, just a simple answer, is that God has, there's no time limit. God has, God sees at the feet. Let me explain this way. Throughout each kingdom, like the head of gold, God said, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm giving you a chance. When you prove yourself to be unworthy, when you choose to not listen to me anymore, as we see in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar openly blasphemed God. God says, at that time, I will give the kingdom to an inferior kingdom. In fact, the spirit of prophecy, it says that God gives every nation a chance to follow him. I'm paraphrasing. He gives them a chance, and when they reject that chance, that's when he gives it to the next kingdom. So God is thinking in his mind, I have a next kingdom. Let's give it to the next kingdom, next kingdom. But when it comes to the feet of iron and clay, this is God's last kingdom. I shouldn't say God's last kingdom, but it's the last kingdom. So God, he says, everything is in place. All is ready. You know, there's no time limit set for this one. Just let it go. And, I mean, this is a huge study, but um, ultimately it's based on God's people. I mentioned it earlier. Character development, you can't set a time on it. God can't say, you know, you, I'm giving you 10 years. Get your act together or so long. No, you can't do that. God, God doesn't do that. He gives us ample time, ample provision, so that things can get ready. I mean, that's not the best answer, but um, perhaps we can answer that through the course of the studies. Yeah. Okay. Political power? Good, good question. Now. The iron, the iron, the legs of iron, what, how is it described? The strength, right? And destructive strength. And the strength of a nation comes from where? The military. So in the feet of iron and clay, whoever is the military power that, that supports or is uni unified with this religious power, that is considered the Rome-like political power. And... In Revelation chapter 13, that power is the second beast that rises out of the earth with lamb-like horns.
that speaks like a dragon. You can study that more on your own. I don't. I mean, I, some of you might know what it is, but um, it's not officially Rome, but it is that second beast in Revelation 13. The, the military power behind it. I mean, it's not too hard to, to ask. What nation in the world today is the only nation that has a military that rivals that of ancient Rome? You can ask yourself that. Okay, any other questions? Okay, let's just end it with that. And, um, yeah, if, if you want to hear the answer to the question that you never asked, you can stay afterwards. So why don't we kneel together for prayer?